I'm Min Fan, and this is the FEMA Podcast. We all know that the weather on Earth can have major impacts on our lives. From severe storms and hurricanes to flooding and heat waves, we depend on weather forecasts to keep us safe. But what about the weather that comes from outside our planet? It's called space weather. One of the most historical space weather events, and that was in 1859, the aurora lit up the sky all the way from where you normally see it all the way down into sections of the Pacific Ocean that people have never seen this before. So it's, I believe it was visible, say, in Cuba. Out in the Pacific, it was visible like in the Samoan Islands. What exactly is space weather, you ask? Stay tuned, because on this episode of the FEMA podcast, we're coming to you from NOAA's Space Weather Prediction Center in Boulder, Colorado, and we're joined by... Sean Dahl, and I'm one of the general forecasters here at the Space Weather Prediction Center. From how space weather is forecast to its impacts on our planet, we dive into how the sun and energy from space can affect us in many ways. So keep listening, because this episode is sure to be out of this world. So what exactly is space weather for those who aren't familiar with that term? Space weather encompasses the changes going on occurring at the sun, the interplanetary vacuum, if you will, from the sun to Earth, as well as the near-Earth environment. That's what space weather is encompassing and what it actually is. Is the changes originating from energetic events on the sun, normally in a form of particles or x-ray, ultraviolet radiation type things, things that are protected here at the surface of our planet in general, but it does tend to impact technology in particular, as well as people that are, say, astronauts or high-flying pilots and and, um, flight attendant type folks on aircraft and communication, the things that are generally invisible to the normal person at the surface of the planet. And what are some of the activities that you and your coworkers and colleagues do here at the Space Weather Prediction Center? Our main job is to analyze and forecast. So normally we have two folks on shift, uh, two functions for each one. One of them is kind of an observer, troubleshooting, um, monitoring the current environment and what's actually happening right now and issuing alerts and warnings. That's their primary, that's the most important function here is the alerts and warnings, getting those out. And that's, that's the one chair in the office. The other chair is the forecaster who's analyzing and predicting ahead and trying to get a feel and understanding for what the sun is currently doing and what changes might, might happen that would influence here the near Earth environment. And that's that f- the main forecaster chair function. When you're forecasting and all those different responsibilities, what kind of tools and instruments do you guys have to look at to be able to um, issue different products or, or, you know, look at that kind of space weather and educate and inform people and partners about what could be coming? That's very unique because we don't have a lot of tools because it's very expensive to get a tool because usually it involves getting them into space. So because of the benefit that we have with our planet that's protecting us from radiation and X-ray harmful things on our bodies that would not allow life here, we have this fortunate atmosphere and one that most people don't know about, our magnetosphere. The protective magnet of our planet plays a huge role in protecting us. So you have to get instruments out above our atmosphere to look at the sun in the wavelengths that we need to see it to get an understanding of what it might be doing, what's happening, and probabilities that something might happen based off analysis and and features on the sun that we're looking for. So to get a satellite into space is very difficult, expensive, 
and uh, takes a lot of time and planning, like years. So we have a few satellites in space. We have two operational platforms that are owned by NOAA. One of them is the Discover spacecraft. It's a spacecraft, uh, Deep Space Climate Observatory is basically what it stands for. Uh, but it's one of our main solar observation platforms. It's about a million miles from Earth, so it's always in an orbit that is equal with the Earth going around the Sun. So in other words, it's 365 days. It's always between the Earth and the Sun. That's uh, one platform. There's a few others in that same area. But that allows us to, it's like a buoy in the ocean. It allows us to see what changes are happening in the solar wind and the environment between us and the Sun to warn us potentially of something that might change here at Earth. Uh, another platform that we have that's owned by NOAA is the GOAS, uh, the geostationary weather satellites that we have. That's how most people see their terrestrial weather imagery on TV from the clouds that the weather casters are sporting up there. That's that platform, but we have space observation tools on there that are measuring the magnetosphere, they're measuring electrons and protons, these atomic particles that we have concerns with here because they affect things from technology to, to ability to communicate. We have some observatories on the ground that we are in huge cooperation with the United States Air Force with. They man some ground-based observatories and they are continually looking at the sun in a wavelength that allows them to see solar flares happening optically. So it's another resource of information. If we have a failure on something, we have some means of seeing what's going on. Of course, any ground-based instrument is limited by weather. And then we use the internet like anybody else. NASA has a lot of research satellites on there. We've come to rely on many of those but we don't operationally control them. So we're limited to the other scientific communities that have needs for those platforms, and we may not get data for certain times when we'd like to have it. So those are just examples of some of the tools uh, that we, we have, but it's very limited. It's not like terrestrial weather. Sure, and I was gonna ask too, I think people are familiar, or a little, a little more familiar with how people forecast the weather you know, on our planet, but when it comes to space weather, the data may be more limited, it, there, it may be more difficult to um, get that data, and so it's kind of hard to draw a comparison, I suppose, but um, it can be really difficult when you're forecasting space weather and the equipment quite isn't there as it would be for weather forecasting on Earth. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. Most of us in the forecast office uh, did weather forecasting, terrestrial weather as, as meteorology types in the past. Um, now we've come to this specialized function through either our careers or through an interest. And I like to tell folks that are here visiting and, and learning about space weather that when it comes to comparing space weather knowledge and science and understanding with terrestrial weather, terrestrial weather is great. We, our models, we have abundance of computer models that help and observation platforms. And if we expect that there's going to be a blizzard, for instance, Five days out, even seven days out, we already have a good handle that something's going to be happening. And you get closer and closer, so by three days, you have a pretty good idea of where the blizzard's going to happen, how much snow's going to be coming down. And as much as people still like to shake their head at meteorologists, it's pretty good. Space weather, if you think of evolution, it's like the fish crawling out of the water for the first time and starting to look around. That's how far behind this knowledge base is. What kind of impacts can come from space weather? You talked a little bit earlier about the communication um, issues that could arise from a solar flare, um, and also flight attendants and airlines also deal with these kind of issues as well, and ev maybe even GPS. So can you talk a little bit more about the impacts that um, we can see here on Earth from space weather? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mentioned about the, the high altitude flyers because that is a concern. But it's something that's still being investigated. It's not clear what those impacts might be. So I don't want to mislead anybody and think that there's a problem 
with uh, people that fly frequently. No, that's not necessarily true. That's still being investigated. It's a concern. That's all it is. It's something people want to look into. Uh, but yeah, the impacts that are, are known to be impacts is as soon as there's a solar flare and it reaches a certain energetic level, and we measure those based off something called the NOAA scale of space weather events, we measure geomagnetic storms, we measure radiation storms, and radio blackouts are the three things. This is all on our webpage for people to look at. And once we reach that first level, it's a, it's a one through five scale. So let's take the solar flare, for instance. If there's a solar flare that happens, that effect here on our sun-facing atmosphere is immediate. It's speed of light. It's already here. Once we see it, the effect is already in our atmosphere. And what that does is the most uh, quick and dramatic impact. It, it wipes out the ability to, to communicate via HF radio and surrounding frequencies at times as well that are that really close to that HF um, frequency levels. Other impacts as far as the radiation storms go, what we're talking about there is energetic protons, uh, these atomic particle pieces, the larger portions of the atom which are spiraling through space. And they tend to get here very quickly or not so quickly. The quickest they can get here is maybe 15 to 20 minutes, which is really fast after an eruption. So the warning time on those is very slim. Usually we don't, we'll, we may have a feeling that there could be something happening, but it's just a feeling. We don't know that there's anything happening until we have that go as platform measure protons and we see that it's going up and by then it's already beginning and you can get a little warning lead time, but not much. It's, it's like a tornado warning at times, it can be very, very short. Um, but the concern there is what that does around the north, the north and south poles is if they're coming in in enough quantities out there in the atmosphere, and they, they, like I say, they don't reach the surface, they're all absorbed out there. But that wipes out the ability to communicate via HF radio. So the airline industry, so they take these routes near the poles now. They go either east or west from, say, the continental United States. And when they fly into those areas that are prone to that, or if we have a warning out for that or a probability for that, they will divert or change those flight routes because the primary, one of the main means of communication when they're doing, especially the route going towards Europe from the United States, the air traffic control they're talking to, relies on HF radio, that control entity. So if they can't communicate, they gotta divert and they gotta fly those longer distance routes. Uh, the other one would be the geomagnetic storms and that's where FEMA would has the most interest and that's the power grid. And when you have certain events from the sun, they can create much larger scale events of disruptive activity in our normal magnetic flow here. And what that does is it creates currents. And a current likes to take short. Anybody who's been a kid who's played and stuck their finger in an electrical socket learns a very hard lesson, right? Well, that's because they are a very least flow of resistance. And so it'll go through them. Same with our uh, electric grid. If there is a very resistive layer of rock at the surface and below, very resistive, it's gonna to wanna to find a shortcut. And those shortcuts are telephone lines, electric lines, um, pipelines, railroad tracks, any of that stuff to flow that current because it wants to find it. And when that gets, uh, that'll get onto the power grid really quickly. And if they don't account for it, the concern is under extreme level events that it could potentially cause some collapses in the power grid. And looking back at past space weather events that have had a large impact on people here on Earth, are there any that come to mind that you can talk about? Sure. 1989, there was a, a very strong, uh, probably extreme level geomagnetic storm that occurred that caused the collapse of the power grid in Quebec, Canada. So basically two-thirds of the province was wiped out of power for hours. 
And that was because of a geomagnetic storm. Space weather caused that. The, there was some impacts even in the northeastern part of the United States, which falls under a portion of that kind of power, cooperative power grid. Um, but we didn't have any major catastrophic failure as far as the power grid goes. We didn't have a blackout in the United States, but Canada did for hours, as I said. And even more recently in 2017, there was an event which caused a radio blackout that shows you the depth of problems that can result when there's a terrestrial weather event combined. So in September of 2017, there was a large set of sunspot groups in the sun. They erupted in one of the largest flares we've had in um, the last 20 years. And that caused a power, uh, a radio blackout, which unfortunately was at the same time that the hurricanes were ravaging the Caribbean islands. And so when you have a hurricane ravage and knock out the power because of terrestrial weather, tear down cell phone towers, um, can't limit, people can't communicate, so they, they reach into their ham radios. When you're on an island, you often use ham radio for an emergency response. It's HF. That flare was happening during that time. So it went for hours beyond when you normally expect to hear from those folks for emergency response or getting in contact with loved ones or whatever. Wiped out that ability to do that for hours beyond what it should have taken. So that kind of gives you a glimpse of when you combine terrestrial weather with space weather, how much more traumatic the impact could possibly be. So when there's significant space weather happening, uh, do you guys put out different products, different alerts for your partners that you work with? Yes, we, we have a good collaboration effort with the United States Air Force, so we communicate with them several times a day. For things that we're looking for, yes, we, we, we do our forecasting, and right there in the forecast, and we're basically coming up with a probability number, a percentage of a chance that something might happen. Uh, so we'll have that out there. That goes out twice a day, every 12 hours, an updated three-day forecast of these three main things on the NOAA scale, radio blackouts, radiation storms, and geomagnetic storming. Now, when we get closer to the time frame, let's say we're expecting something such as last week, we were expecting some activity. We'll be looking for it. We'll constantly, as we always do, vigilant monitoring the solar wind environment and, and the solar, uh, uh, solar disk. And once we see a change happening, which we did early on, something came in earlier than expected, we saw a change. So once we see that change in the solar wind, we know that we got a certain amount of time based off the speed that this is happening to either issue and think about putting a warning out or issuing the warning. So in this case, once a warning goes out, and the, it escalates. And then once you have the warning issued, then we wait for the activity to actually respond and happen as measured by, say, magnetometers here on our planet. And then once we know we're reaching that criteria, then we put out the alert, which basically says it's now happening and here's the level we're at. Now it escalates and we can get very busy very quickly here. So we can be all high and dry and now we're waiting. And this can be very frustrating because we could ex be expecting, say, a G2 geomagnetic storm, a moderate level event. And it's just very quiet space weather. So it's like the birds chirping is all you're just waiting, waiting. And you start to get, where is it? Where is it? Is it going to show up? I hope it shows up. And I'll say it finally does. Boom, just like that, it's reflected because not, it's like a, a car passing a point at 50 miles an hour in a road. Suddenly it's there, and there was nothing there before. So now it's there, and it gets through that medium. And then you try to predict and escalate quickly the levels of activity. And for example, and I'll use geomagnetic storms as the example. So at the G1, the bottom level of our NOAA scale for geomagnetic activity, minor levels, we have a few, we put the warning out and we have a few phone calls that we make essentially to a couple of the power grid uh, entities in the northeast part of the country that just want to know for situational awareness. 
When we get to G2, the next level on the scale, we're calling a few more in person to let them know the warnings out. Who wanted to, and we're also talking to an air traffic control entity out on the West Coast because they want to know because there can be some potential impacts to their ability to, to either communicate or for navigational issues or whatever. We get to G3. Now we're on a conference call with the North American Energy Reliability Corporation. It's called the NERC. That's where all the power grids across the, that serve our country and some of these extend into Canada are on a conference call with us and we're telling them what's going on and what we're expecting. Because now they're all concerned. They all want to know situational awareness still really more than anything. And they may, you know, they may need, want to know, well, we have some highly calibrated type maintenance we need to do today. We probably can't do it because there may be some false instrument readings, for example. Not expecting any kind of collapse at that level whatsoever, but they all want to know. They need to know. When we get to G4 levels of activity, FEMA wants to know. So we're on a phone call with FEMA headquarters there, essentially, or whatever personnel serve there, to let them know because now the government in itself, the federal government, wants to be aware of what's happening just because of the increased potential that something catastrophic could happen. Not that it would, but just that tiny sliver of extra susceptibility to that function happening. So now, as I said, FEMA wants to know. And when you're doing this, and sometimes this can happen so quickly, that you're, you're within five minutes of hanging up the phone or even less sometimes, suddenly you're at the next level, oh my gosh, I need to put out a, a G4 um, alert now or whatever the case may be. So it can get very difficult to maintain all those functions, which is why we try to have two people in here all the time. And in those types of cases, when we're expecting a lot of activity, we'll have more. Just to feed the venue, try to keep social media updated, keep our web page updated with the latest news and information about what's happening and what's going on. Uh, so people have that resource to reach back to to find out, hey, does, does this mean anything to me or should I just be looking for the aurora? Sure. And, you know, I think when we're talking about the impacts of space weather, um, you know, impacts from the sun and the energy from the sun coming here, a lot of people think about the northern lights. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that works necessarily? Because I think that's what people think of when they think of how space weather might uh, impact them or what they might be able to see. That's exactly the fun of it that most people look <laughs> at when they, uh, unfortunately for us, our mission here is, is protecting lives and property. That's what the National Weather Service does, is protect lives and property. So as much as, for instance, I or others might be intrigued by the aurora and want to tell people, hey, go luck out, you might see the aurora, we don't do that because our focus is on that lives and property. But for the hobbyist who wants to see the northern lights, there's a pretty good equative factor to the level of geomagnetic storming expected and how far south that might extend along the the magnetic latitudes, if you will, because it's not the same as a, as a geographic latitude, it's different. And we, we often try to post that up via our social media, via our Twitter or uh, Facebook accounts on where you might be able to see the Northern Lights if it pans out to what we were expecting. So for the enthusiast who likes to see the Aurora, I would monitor our webpage closely, especially when they hear of something happening, and then kind of watch the conditions, because you can almost self-forecast if the aurora might be visible or not by looking at the solar wind, which is all available on our web page, and knowing some ins and outs of uh, material on things to look for that would give you a hint on whether it's favorable or not favorable to see the aurora. And based on all of that information, for those who are listening who may be concerned about space weather, is there something that they really should be concerned about, or how can they prepare for a potential uh, event that may affect them or may not affect them? The best thing to do is Monitor our webpage above all else because we are the nation's source for forecasts, alerts, and warnings, uh, the official source. This is what the taxpayers are paying for, and this is what we do the best to comprehend. And in the pursuit of the National Weather Service mission of protecting lives and property, 
we're going to try to keep that stuff out there as openly as possible, as quickly as we possibly can once we make a decision. My recommendation is just visit that. Be situationally aware of what's going on because for most people, it means nothing as far as an impact of their life. For the Aurora Watcher, it means a lot. For the astronaut, it means a lot. For the satellite industry that may have concerns about something, it could mean something. It may not mean something. For the power grid industry, it could mean a lot or it might not mean so much. But for the general ordinary citizen, stay situation aware. Know what's going on. Don't let hype of an event make somebody uh, feel like they need to take some kind of measure uh, to protect themselves because there's really nothing that's going to probably happen to them on a, on a normal case. 99% of the time in these, in these larger events, not the catastrophic level, but the larger events, the aurora is what they're going to get to see at, at the very most, and that's what they should take pride in. There's really nothing to do to physically prepare so much other than the standard things. The stuff you would do to prepare for a terrestrial weather event, the precautions, the stockpile of food and canned goods and and batteries and things like that would be the same thing you'd want to do for any consideration of space weather. And if people wanted to look at the website for the Space Weather Prediction Center and, and look at that information about the Aurora, uh, what would that website be for them? That website is swipsy.noaa.gov, S-W-P-C dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Perfect. Thank you. Sean Dahl, the Space Weather Prediction Center here in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcasts at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov forward slash podcasts. <laughs>